The biggest game in England gets overshadowed by the biggest story of the Premier League season as Chelsea continues to do the improbable, lend credence to Mourinho's three-year curse. Elsewhere, Manchester United bear fruit without Wayne, City remains perfect, and the only other team yet to lose a match this season is Leicester City. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the World Soccer Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. The international break may have seen teams like Swansea and Watford change their courses, but for last year's top two, it was more of the same. Manchester City is perfect through five rounds, and Chelsea is floundering near the bottom of the table. To talk about that, let me bring in my co-hosts, Karta Krishnayer and Lawrence McKenna. And Lawrence, dear long-lost Lawrence, we need to start with Chelsea because how much does this slump reflect their true selves will probably define this entire Premier League season. 3-1 losers at Everton in the first game of the weekend. Everton being a team we conceded is decidedly capable, but decidedly not great. So what happened to Chelsea on Saturday? Well, they got beaten, Richard. Oh, um, they did. Did you watch the game? Is that what the three and the one means? You know, I'm American. I really don't know these things very well. Can, well, you, ex- Pope, can you explain this to me? Yeah, I, I know you don't get prom- I'm a promotion relegation either, but that's a separate subject, Richard. Um, <laughs> oh, no. The, the, main, the main thing is, um, the main thing here is that uh, Martinez probably almost wrote his own best article post-game, and he said, you know, we scored three goals last season. It wasn't that we didn't feel we couldn't score on them. It was that we felt we weren't defensively stable enough against Chelsea. Hmm. And if you mix that with the fact that some people are talking about there's a feeling within the dressing room that Chelsea can just turn up and win a game. Hmm. Um, and that's not necessarily the case in the Premier League. There's also, tactically, uh, you've got to say, it's not as if Chelsea did an awful lot wrong. The, the movement and the shape and sometimes um, it was more about the execution, I'd say, of that. And I, again, I think Mourinho has done this post-game and said, uh, don't blame them, blame me. But you sort of think, you know what, I'm not looking for someone to blame at this point. I, I don't really care about blame when it comes to Chelsea. I care about the analysis. And there doesn't seem to be an awful lot of analysis because you look at those players and you think, and there's a lot of people saying, well, they should all be doing better, right? Because yeah, we know they're analysis. good. These yeah. people, that, but that's what that's what I think confuses a lot of people is they go, wait, Fabregas is good. And, mm-hmm. you know, don't know about that one. Well, you know, but Hazard, is, good or, is good and Costa is good and these other almost all the players on the team are indisputably good. They just haven't been good for this first month. Yeah. So what's the difference between because, you know, I mean, what, so what we what's good? Because, you know, if, if you're not executing it, then essentially you're, you know, it makes Chelsea the same as Liverpool. Uh, if, if it can't be fit into a headline, it's not good at all. Kartik, your thoughts on the first match of the weekend. Uh, for me, it was still a surprising result. Not entirely shocking. We talked about it on Wednesday, how a team that pushes Everton back and allows them to play on the counterattack kind of feeds into Everton's strengths, if not their preferences. Um, Stephen Naismith ended up taking advantage of that. Right, and Everton, as, as we talked about midweek, have uh, the weapons on the bench in this sort of game that uh, they, can, they can unleash, uh, even in the, in the case of Naismith, which, which they have to go to in the eighth minute when Mohamed Bessic was injured, and guys like Aaron Lennon and Delafeu and, and, and others, Pinar, others. So it, it's, uh, it plays to Everton's strength, which is not necessarily the way Roberto Martinez likes to play his football, but he, he's got to be pragmatic this season after, after the failure of last season. And we saw a really tidy Everton with Gareth Barry anchoring that midfield playing like a Gareth Barry of old. Uh, he, he's got some tread on his tires, and we saw that last season. He was, uh, he was off the mark often last season, but he just bossed that midfield, uh, perhaps aided a little bit by Fabregas's inept 
that that's maybe another subject another time. Maybe it sounds like we're talking about Fabregas a lot here, but let's let's actually just talk about the context of this game. And guys, you know how we do. We usually drill in on one team, usually the bigger team that's occupying most of the headlines. So why don't we purposely take a couple of minutes here to talk about Everton a little bit more? Kartik, you started talking about some of the details there, but this is the second really good performance of the year we've seen from Everton. The other one being that very convincing victory at the South Coast, St. Mary's against Southampton, scoring three. You know, Southampton's only allowed five goals this year, and three of them were to Everton. Um, right. So, Kartik, how good is Everton? Because I think we just keep going back and forth with this team. Is this a team that is going to be two years ago Everton or something closer to last year Everton? I think they're going to be closer to two years ago Everton. I've kind of made my mind up about that after watching this performance. After thinking about, and we talked about it midweek, why didn't they sell Stones? Why didn't they sell Naiman? Why didn't they sell Barkley? I think they think they, they, they can make a run at it this year at fourth. Uh, it's still a leap of faith to think they can get there, but they have all the place to, in all the pieces in place if they can stay healthy uh, and continue to get the sorts of performances they're getting out of players like Naismith and Kone, not mm-hmm. not the frontline players we think of. Uh, they're they're going to go a long way. This. Are you as convinced, Lawrence, about Everton's quality? <clears throat> I was in Liverpool earlier this week talking to some Everton fans, and I think they're still very skeptical over Martinez. Um, very often, the point is made. You know, what has he learned in terms of being, I don't know, not, not, not uh, Just pragmatic, what, but, right. but, but he, what, what's he actually learning? How is he adjusting this, this idealistic style that he came to Goodison with? Right. I don't know. There's also still, for me, there's still an incredible amount of otherness about Roberto Martinez with Everton. Ooh, you know, people. There's a, there's people a term. Well, I mean, what, what I mean by that is people were so used to their identity under David Moyes, and that's the irony, uh, the irony uh. of May Smith coming on. Um, <laughs> but they, they, were, they were so used to their identity under David Moyes, and this is almost, you know, I mean, and, yeah. and the identity that they had. It's on, the whole of Merseyside essentially suffers from that right now. Two ex-Swansea managers move into the clubs, try and instill a different kind of football with two greatly loved managers, huge shadows still very much uh, hanging over the club. And at the moment, I think it really does taint the analysis of both the managers and the approach to the teams because they're both sort of saying, well, this was our heyday. This is where we were doing great. This is change. And there seems to still be some form of resistance against it. Everton and Liverpool fans may say different because they'll say we need to support our team, etc. But when you get deep into the conversations, there are still big questions over what these managers are instilling at the club and how effective that is compared to the Moyes or Benitez era. This is what I like most about Everton actually appearing to be good. And I don't, I don't want to phrase it like I'm skeptical. You look at their team. They have the talent to pull off these kind of results. But you add Everton to Swansea, Southampton, Tottenham, Liverpool, um, Leicester, Palace, and you add that to the team, four teams that we think are going to make the top four, and you have half of the Premier League card tick with really quality teams. And I'm not sure when in this, well, at least the last decade of this league, where we could say the depth in the top half of the league has been that promising. No, I don't think it, it has been. And this this is a part of the pivot that's going to take place in this new TV deal. And there's more TV money getting uh, to, to the clubs, uh, domestic TV money. Is massive right now. The international TV money they won't see, including NBC's two uh, reported close to $2 billion contract here for Yay. coverage in the States, they won't get to see until next uh, next year. So 
this is where a guy like Kentra, we saw again protests yesterday at the ground about Kentrite and the financial position of Everton. And I had wondered midweek, speculated aloud on this program, that maybe Kentrite has a buyer, and that's why they didn't sell stones and why Barkley's not on the, on the market. And Naismith didn't just take the money from Norwich and, 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 and move on. Uh, perhaps it's because Kentrite has already estimated the money uh, is going to make them a wash with cash. And if they can somehow get to fourth place, which maybe is not terribly realistic, but it's possible, mm, yeah. um, then they'll be okay. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It's not realistic, but it is possible. I, I think that's that's a good way to put it. Let's shift gears here and talk about the thing that we put off. Uh, another thing that we speculated about midweek, we talked about Jose Mourinho. We talked about the specter that is starting to come over his job. He's starting to get questions in press conferences. He's starting to get um, people prodding about the relationship between him and Robert Abramovich. He's starting to get people buying into this three-year curse idea. So, Lawrence, let's just go ahead and indulge this. How much should we really be talking about the possibility of Chelsea moving away from Mourinho anytime soon? Um, well, I don't understand quite where I'm qualified to comment on that because I know no more than you. You know what I mean? Well, we're almost just we're almost feeding to the fire of that because it you know whether Mourinho wants us to speak about that or not. I, I it just all counts as speculation for me. What I would say mm-hmm. is. We know his history to do with the three-year thing, to do with the, the Bella Gutmanesque um, way in which we all analyse him. But you made a great point just a few weeks ago. Do we analyse? Do we actually analyse that, or do we analyse what he's aiming for here? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't. But that's the problem: is no one quite knows what Mourinho is aiming for here, do they? Maybe he's because just, he's yeah. he's make, making different noises to the noise he made just a few years ago. Well, maybe he's and just it's, um, yeah. What are you saying? <laughs> no, I was just saying maybe he's just aiming for survival. But this is starting to have the same feel as his last year at Real Madrid, where he really started um, bunkering in and that bunkering started to really rub some people both at the club and within the squad the wrong way. Why, why though, why such poor performances? Because you would have expected Chelsea to at least perform in some of those games. And they have, they just haven't. Like it was as if, they were almost disinterested. Am I right? Yeah. Well, and Kartik, I'll get your thoughts on this. My big problem is these are five games that are poor by Chelsea standards, but if they had happened in January instead of now, we would be saying that they're just going through a swoon. It's just the whole sample size thing and the timing thing. But Kartik, I know from talking to you, and I know over the last week from hearing probably sources at a similar level, which isn't, you know, aren't people with glasses at the door of Chelsea's boardroom, but people who are involved in the game, they are starting to hear that there are tensions between Mourinho and the other decision makers at the club, and they are actually thinking that Mourinho might be gone in a similar fashion that he left before, or Vyash Boash left before, or Fulipao left before, a mid-season change, and I'll only know here right now that Goose Hedink is available. <laughs> well, Carlo Ancelotti is available too, and he'd be the obvious replacement if Roman could set aside that, and Paul Clement will get sacked at Derby, so he could come and be an assistant, and things would be good again, and Chelsea could win the league title with that team. But uh, they're probably not going to go. Um, look, right now Chelsea, they're playing very poorly, and yes, we would just look at it as a swoon if it weren't another part of the season. But it is worth noting they have the worst goal difference in the Premier League right now. And the worst is, defense. And the worst defense, which is absolutely stunning when you consider uh, all, all things related to, the, to this club. And keep in mind, Courtois saved a penalty against West Brom. Otherwise, they wouldn't have a victory at all, uh, arguably. Uh, they'd be sitting on two points instead of four. There is something very wrong with the club's body, with the player's body language, with the player's attitude. You saw it again yesterday. Uh, it, it just There just seems to be a malaise that's set in. Now, 
What's happened with some other clubs is runs uh, periods of time like this from Arsenal, where Wenger, because he's Arsene Wenger, he has the faith, maybe not of the supporters, all the supporters, but of uh, the, the, the Gunners board, and they pull out of it, mm-hmm. and, and they come good. They finish third or fourth. We saw it last year with Manchester City, some horrible performances, which were followed up by uh, an end-of-the-season uh, winning streak of six, six matches, which... A big part of that was actually Frank Lampard, who's no longer with the club, but um, set them up nicely. We saw Manchester United at times under Fergie go through sorts of, but then always come out good the other side. The difference is Jose, his personality, the way he polarizes the, uh, publicly and privately, and the way he always has to uh, find another fall guy and play mind games, even mind games in the press. Uh, his reiteration yesterday that he felt like they've been hard done in every match, uh, implying they should have had a draw against Manchester City, that they should have uh, won yesterday, that they uh, should have uh, they should have won against Crystal Palace. It's it's just madness in reality, and no one well, is I do, taking him seriously. But I I do find it quite difficult sometimes where we speak about polarizing figures and polarizing managers. We will romanticize some for the way that they are so forthright in the way that they think, but we will. Mm-hmm. Malign others for being so. For instance, or we'll put both. Uh, you we'll st- apply both of those to the same person, depending on the year. Yeah, I mean, we, but, yeah. you know, you go as far back as the I don't know the 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 sixties, and people say, um, oh, well, you know, well, if if you were injured, Bill Shankly, he frees you out, and they go, but that's just good management, though, isn't it? And then they go, well, you know, Bob Paisley, one of the best at Liverpool, you know, uh, he didn't really talk to any of his subs though, and people go, but that was Bob. You know, and then they go and then they go, well, Lou Van Gaal, he's frozen people out at United. That's outrageous. You can't be you can't be treating people like that. He's alienating everyone. On the go- no. Oh, no. Wait a minute. No, he's explained it. So one minute we go with one narrative and the next minute we go with the next. And I just don't get like it. It's almost like a, an almost Russian form of yeah. mediaism where Mourinho just provides you with so much information that's counter and then counter to that and counter and counter to that that you're almost confused by it to the point where you can't analyze it because you have it. You, you're like, wait a minute. It, he's saying criticize the players, but no, wait, now he's saying criticize me, but wait, now he's so it helps him to gain time and gain political space if you like hmm. Josie Mourinho pulling the strings of the media who would have thought uh, gentlemen this is this is a good topic let's pick it up after the break but we do need to take a break and we need to get everybody caught up on what was a great return from the international break uh, nine matches this weekend in the Premier League starting on Saturday a beautiful goal finished by Theo Walcott opened the scoring at the Emirates as Arsenal cruised to a 2-0 victory over Stoke Crystal Palace was stalwart but Manchester City was relentless as a late goal from Caliche Ihenacho pushed the David Silva-less, Raheem Sterling-less, practically Kun Aguero-less citizens passed Palace 1-0 at Selhurst Park. Norwich finally had their breakthrough performance, scoring three times in the first 67 minutes against visiting Bournemouth en route to a 3-1 victory at Carroll Road. Watford got a second-half goal from Odin Ekalu, saw Valenbarami sent off but held on for a 1-0 victory over visiting Swansea. Southampton's tepid control at the Hawthorns produced a tepid result, 0-0 against West Brom, and a Wayne Rooney-less Manchester United finally found their goals in a 3-1 victory over visiting Liverpool. On Sunday, Sunderland stayed entrenched at the bottom of the table after a late goal from Ryan Mason gave Tottenham a 1-0 victory at the Stadium of Light, while Leicester overcame a 2-0 deficit to Aston Villa using goals from Richie DeLate, Jamie Vardy, and the newly acquired Nathan Dyer to claim a 3-2 victory and second place in the Premier League 
with that win over Villa. The Foxes are four points behind Manchester City, however, who have yet to drop a point or concede a goal through five rounds. Manchester City and Arsenal are tied for third with ten points, while Crystal Palace drops from second to fifth after their close call against City. When we come back, we'll move on from Chelsea and talk uh, the Northwest Derby and what was a 1-2 battle at the top of the league at Selhurst Park. But first, let's get a word in from our sponsors. Well, we're back from the international break, and be it City's form or Chelsea's struggles, the Premier League continues to deliver the season. But to keep that excitement going, I want to, again, talk to you about Rabble.tv and talk about their new type of television experience. Rabble.tv is a place to listen to live match commentaries from real fans while games are being played, and the way it works could not be simpler. All you have to do is tune into your game on your television, but press the mute button. Then head over to Rabble.tv to listen to soccer fans, providing their own commentaries. Or... Better yet, you can create your own broadcast, invite all of your friends, call one of your team's games just by signing up for free and switching on your microphone. With Rabble, you can listen to your broadcast on your desktop or you can listen through your iOS app and now you can also listen to your mo- through your mobile browser so you can listen to it anywhere, anyplace, on any device. Sign up today at Rabble.tv where it's your team and it's your call. Well, guys, I normally give our co-hosts a bit of a break here, but we were talking about something uh, pretty interesting before that read and uh, something that actually kind of had me stumbling on my script a little bit because I want to pick up on Mourinho, Lawrence. And this is really an area where you are always very healthily skeptical about where the conversation goes because it seems like every year we always pick one big manager and ask if their slow start is going to lead to the first big sacking of the season but ultimately we are only five games into the season and while Kartik and myself may be hearing whispers from England about people uh, speculating about Jose's job it's unclear if those whispers are really founded in something high up in the Chelsea hierarchy or it's just the reflex that we normally have this time of year so you, you told us what your feelings are about the situation. I mean, what your kind of analysis are of the situation. But now I am actually interested in those feelings. What, do you, what is your gut telling you about what you're seeing at Chelsea and the tenor of what you're hearing about the situation? Uh, good question. Um, I don't have a gut. Guts are for, I, guts yeah, are for I, Americans. They're for Bush presidencies. They're not for me. I do 100 sit-ups a day. It serves me just fine. Um, I, I think w- when it comes down to Mourinho, I, I, I would be very careful to make predictions. Um, what I would say is there are a lot of Chelsea fans who, for the f- there are, and weirdly now, it's as if there were people who were just not watching what he was doing before, or they were willfully looking away from it. So it almost seems like the boyfriend who for years you've been going, you know, that guy's a bit of an asshole, right? And they've been going, no, he's just, he's just like that. Like, you just need to get to know him. It's just, he just pokes people in the eye. Don't worry about it. And, <laughs> and you're like, no, like he's, no, he's, he's nobody just in the pokes eye. people in the eye. Yeah, and he just, and he just got that referee sacked, and you're like, no, he just does that. Like that's his thing, you know, because people are disposable. But as long as he wins the matches, it's cool. But now there's, like I said, there's the post Mariniism where we sort of get to the point where people are saying, wait a minute, we're a little bit. Not only are we sick of this because you know we're not winning the games, but also what we're realizing is it's tainting the wins at this point, and it's take you know they've almost had long enough where mm. people have now gone well. You know, you're winning, but you're doing it like this. And, you know, people are analyzing the money spend and all those kind of things. And they're saying, there's been a lot spent here. Like, surely you should be doing better than this. or you should be doing more. And that's tainting their Premier League uh, experience, if you like. Mm. The weird thing for me is that people are not doing it. They're doing it. uh, They're not they're not doing it in a they're not doing it in a distinguished way. Mm. 
Uh, they're selectively being outraged by Mourinho, but then unselectively uh, not outraged by the spending of City or Liverpool or United. Yeah. And well, it, people are very outraged work. about the spending of City. We, we can talk about that in a little bit. I mean, it even got brought up again on my Twitter account when I was saying this is a great win for City because they didn't have these people, and then people responding, "Well, they spent so much on the rest of their squad." Kartik, I want to I want to build on something Lawrence said at the beginning of his feelings about Mourinho, and he was talking about trying to find predictability in an unpredictable person. But if you look at Mourinho's career moves, they have been not only predictable, but a lot of the speculation about them ended up being correct, whether it was him jumping for Porto to Chelsea when he became the it manager at that point, whether it was him leaving Chelsea and then going to Inter, whether it was him leaving Inter after winning the title and going to Real Madrid, or whether it was in those last days of Real Madrid when things were wearing so thin, him going back to Chelsea. So if you look at that pattern, the tea leaves have been generally correct about Josie Mourinho. And so we get back to the key question of this. How much of these tea leaves that we're starting to read now are going to end up being true when we look back on this five months from now? Yeah, I, I, I'm like Lawrence. I'm in the same boat where I'm not quite sure how to forecast this because this is, this is seemingly a new discussion for us because we thought – it's not a new discussion for us. It's an old discussion, but we thought – that Mourinho had turned the page, right? Now he was going to be a Chelsea lifer. After all of that turbulence in his career, it, it seemed the second half of last season, uh, he wasn't making the outrageous comments he was making. Uh, in the past, he seemed uh, at ease with, um, with, with the club and with, uh, with the fact that they were able to run away with the title last season. But from the point of that Spurs game on January 1st till the end of the season, he didn't say very much that was outrageous. He didn't give us very much to chew on as members of the press. Uh, but then this season, the whole thing has started all over again with, with this, this rapid intensity. Uh, and uh, he's even still being mocked for his tactics winning the title last season. We saw mm-hmm. Will Ferrell midweek at the GQ Awards uh, uh, mocking Mourinho. It was, it was actually quite funny. Uh, and Will Ferrell's a Chelsea fan, we should point out. But I was going to say, uh, was he mocking Mourinho or was he mocking the people who mock Mourinho? Because I saw yeah, Well, thought, that's a good question. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. I don't know, actually. He might have been <laughs> mocking the people who were mocking Mourinho. Maybe yeah. he likes seven in the box. He likes the yeah. uh, bunker tactics. Uh, but, his next big movie, actually. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, the, the question, though, is, um, is this going to take a typical Mourinho course, or is it really a different time for Mourinho? Because if it is a different time for Mourinho, which is what we sense that second half of last season, then all bets are off. If it is going to take the typical course, Richard, just as you said, just about every career move we've speculated about to this point, where when there's been smoke, there's been fire. And if that were the case, he will be gone by Christmas. Hmm. Speaking of smoke and fire, how about Manchester United's attack without Wayne Rooney, everybody? Three actual goals. I mean, you know, penalty kicks and stuff in there. But uh, without Wayne Rooney, Manchester United gets the kind of uh, goal-scoring performance that fans have expected. I won't quite say attacking performance, Kartik, because uh, it still wasn't exactly the kind of dynamism that I think a lot of people want to see for their money but uh you know, between, between well maybe their standards are a little bit too high but Kartik between this victory against Liverpool uh the victory to open the season against Spurs even though that was an own goal you know, you've got six points against decent teams at home holding serve and we're kind of getting a barometer of where United does sit in this league I suppose so I mean I still there are a lot of unanswered questions about United I mean I felt like Liverpool were so bad in this match and uh so uh listless that it's tough to make a judgment it was manchester united liverpool so we have to give united some credit for coming out and playing uh with the kind of uh, enthusiasm and and, uh energy they did even in that first 20 minutes when they weren't rewarded with a goal but uh 
I just uh, looking at this performance. I, I'm looking more at Liverpool, and, and I know we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, let's let's stick with United here because I, I do think there's probably more to talk about with Liverpool. But Lawrence, just in general, Liverpool United, give us your thoughts on that match. Uh, what what was going through your mind as you were watching it, as you saw uh, United do their United thing, and Liverpool kind of do nothing. I wasn't necessarily as bored as everyone else was, but maybe that's because I had an interest in the game. Um, but I uh, and also. I do not like the demanding of entertaining football um, by everyone. It just, it, it, okay. I just find it weird. Um, what I do, what what I did think with United was um, there were some standout performances from certain players within there. It was great to see the energy of Ashley Young in the second half. Hmm. Um, yeah, the performance of Daily Daily Blint at centre back, but then also, like Kartik said, that's tapered by the fact that Liverpool put Benteke on Smalling and not Blint, and um, the fact that United. Uh, played the formation that they've been playing just a few weeks ago, and yet it looked very different to um, the, the, the one that we saw just a few weeks ago. It looked so uh, with such lack of energy. Things changed in the second half, and Liverpool just didn't up their energy. They didn't, and Manchester United did, and they they got uh, Liverpool got overrun in the midfield, and that for me just stinks of inexperience in the middle of the park and running that that match and running the pace of the game. Liverpool didn't even try and control the pace, whereas Manchester United just had two guys just setting the pace, Carrick and Schweinsteiger. Yeah, Cartier- let me, let me oh. throw this out there real quickly. Is Memphis Depay was bought at a great cost to Manchester United this summer. Maybe, like Martial, he's a buy for Ryan Giggs, and you just go with Ashley Young now because the team yeah. looked really good at the end of last season when Young was starting. And they looked really good in the second half again with Young replacing Depay. Yeah, I, I keep bringing it up, guys, so you guys aren't going to be surprised to hear this. I thought that Memphis was pretty bad yesterday. Every single time he touches the ball, ends up being a negative play of some sort, be it a pass backward, a giveaway, or a shot that doesn't really have a lot of hope. He's had one good game so far, and he does seem like somebody you want to continue giving time to, given his age and the adjustment period, but we saw the immediate benefits of bringing Ashley Young in against, you know, Klein didn't look like a good defender on that play that eventually drew the foul that led to the first goal, but Klein's a good right back in this league, and uh, Ashley Young did well to draw that uh, to draw that penalty. Uh, Kartik, Lawrence mentioned Daly Blinn had another good game in central defense. I think a lot of people are having their view clouded by the few uncertain moments that he had in the first couple games. And then also what happened against Swansea. But I don't really blame him for what happened against Swansea. That was much more a tactical thing where he had to be pulled wide left to cover a flank that was being abandoned. Uh, at, At what point do you think we can stop talking about Manchester United defense as if it's this Achilles heel, given that they've only allowed, I think, three goals this year? Well, when someone gets injured because they don't have Johnny Evans anymore, uh, that was a, a bad decision to sell him. Another bad sale in my mind of theirs. And uh, when their depth gets tested, I mean, that, that's really the issue. Although the Blinn-Smalling pairing, with the exception, as you said, of that second half against Swansea when uh, the Swans went to a diamond and, and United didn't substitute or react accordingly, uh, that central defense pairing has been pretty good. And uh, they weren't really tested yesterday. Uh, against Liverpool, no. but again, they, no. came, they came good, and Blind was very good going forward, as we saw, not just in the, with the goal, but he, he had an integral part in all that play. And when you have, you mentioned uh, Schweinsteiger and, uh, and Carrick, uh, you're kind of your generals, and I love Michael Carrick. I know everybody complains he's slow, but he's still such, to me, a great reader of the game, and a great quarterback, if you will, if you want to use an American football analogy, for a team, for a good team like uh, like a Manchester United, he's he's that winning quarterback that that doesn't get the credit. He's just efficient. Uh, when you have a guy like Blind, 
who's a good passer, who's good on the ball, who has some of the instincts of a midfielder uh, playing in the center back position. Behind those two guys, it's it looks really tidy, nice and tidy, and very good. Yeah, I particularly liked it uh, on Saturday. You saw, as particularly in the first half, has Manchester United kept that possession, kept moving the ball across the flanks. Carrick and Schweinsteiger creeping forward and forward. And Blind is somebody that can then step into that gap as it grows and grows. Be somebody who can handle the ball, swing it from one side to another because he does have those midfielder skills and instincts. But I think part of that, Lawrence, was enabled by the fact that Lawrence, uh, that <laughs> I was about to call him Lawrence Rogers, of that Brendan Rogers ostensibly started two strikers, but with as much possession as United had, we saw uh, Danny Ings essentially dropping back, becoming a midfielder in defense, and the formation becoming entirely broken as sometimes we would see 25-30 yards between the next, the highest midfielder and Christian Benteke up top. Yeah, that was the weird part was that, I mean, at the moment it it is like, like a lumping game for Liverpool really and the way that they... I mean, at times they played nice football. There were some nice moves, um, and mm-hmm. there were moments where it seemed to fit together. But there wasn't really any uh, permanent cohesion between the team. And you really want to see Liverpool in their stride. I think most because most people's expectation is that when they're in their stride, then that's when Liverpool are at their best. They remember the season of just a few seasons ago. And I, I guess the, the problem was that Christian Benteke looks so isolated, and you, you look at the solutions on the pitch, and you think, well, why are those guys not? closer to Benteke because (laughs) Mm -hmm. and when you ask the question it's hard because I don't know what the answer is I don't understand why people with Liverpool weren't looking it was a very compact side it was a side that was clearly set up to defend against United and maybe try and break on them but then they didn't use Benteke in an effective way to be able to break so it it was it was very the criticism of United is very similar to the criticism of Liverpool is that they look very as if they're playing very functional football not necessarily enjoyable or free flowing, or also intelligent football. It's literally this is what Rogers wants, and this is what we're doing, and that's partly why. And I think there was similar analysis on Sky Sports when you look at that first goal. How the hell did anyone leave the whole of the op- first part of that box open? Jamie Carrick, in fact, yeah. yes, Jamie Carrick made this point on Sky Sports. He just said, if if you've got a thinking person there, or someone who's reading the game, or got game management, or whatever you want to call it, you have someone who just says, get on that, get get to the edge of the box, just put put anyone there. But there's no one out there on the pitch that was doing that for Liverpool. And that was partly uh, why United scored that opening goal. It was all of why United scored that opening goal. Yeah, maybe. I, I think that's that's good analysis. But then I also wonder if somebody just stands there and a runner runs by that person at the top 18 and ends up scoring the goal instead. Um, yeah, but Liverpool had so many men left over. They have, I think they have five guys in the back line and mm-hmm. just one guy standing with them. And you think... You've got to be intelligent enough to read the game. Yeah. And that's partly what people got with, with Suarez and Sturridge and Gerrard and Henderson and those guys right. is you get someone who can read the game. And, you you know, Milner can read it, but is he able to <laughs> move the players around? And Skirt and Lovren certainly are not, uh, are not commanding yeah. of that back line right now. Well, you talked about the inability to connect with the Christian Benteke. I think this is where we need to give Michael Carrick, Bastian Feinsteiger, Daly Blind, Ander Herrera some credit. Winning so many balls or forcing so many mistakes as the ball is coming out of Manchester United's attacking third. Uh, gentlemen, I want to shift gears, talk about the matchup between the what were the top two teams in the league going into the weekend. Manchester City, Kartik, we speculated that this might be a place where they could drop some points. We knew David Silva was going to be out. Raheem Sterling ended up being out. Kun Aguero ended up leaving the game at the half hour mark and that's actually where I want to start this because you look at that type of play Scott Dan comes up takes out Sergio Aguero professional foul he's willing to concede the yellow card 
But in doing so, he gets a little clumsy, ends up kicking Aguero either right on his right knee or right below his right knee. Aguero can't continue. And it just seems like such a innocent but unnecessary play. Like, we should not be risking players' health just for the sake of professional fouls. And although Dan did get a yellow card, it doesn't seem like a fair trade-off to me. It seems like we should give people a little bit more disincentive than engaging in a play that puts a player's knees at risk. Yeah, I, I suppose so. But unfortunately, I mean, in the case of Aguero, we have a player that's, that, that perennially has these issues, perennially yeah, gets injured. And he's very fragile. And the, the, the sense has been all along with Manchester City selling Dzeko and selling, well, selling, loaning Jovetic and loaning Dzeko out. But they're both <laughs> essentially sales, right? They're, they're, uh, there's a, uh, a required buy clause in both of those loan deals uh, to, to Roma and Inter, respectively. Well, they're, they're not coming back, at least. Right, they're not coming back to Manchester City. So uh, that that left Manchester City very thin up front where Hinaccio, um, who scored the winning goal in this game, and Patrick Roberts, who just came on a, a transfer from Fulham, who's 18 years old. And was in the team, a, yeah. And was in the team, uh, are going to get games, and they're going to play a lot. Uh, Roberts, of course, is, is a, a great hope. He's the latest great. English striking hope. He's he's eighteen. He's a king. He can play out wide too. Actually, he's more of a winger. But um, so that's uh, it's been a concern. But yes, uh, there, there's a lot of foul play. I thought uh, I thought Palace was very very physical yesterday. But they yeah. ended up getting uh, on the, on the back end uh, some some unfortunate uh, injuries uh, to uh, to Kabai and to Punchin, which I think may have tossed this game towards City. Uh, not much talked about or Punchin having to come off after being fouled. Uh, by um, by Mangala, and then yeah, and Kabai cl- clearly wasn't himself the last ten minutes after he picked up a knock. Mm, yeah, and it, it, and before that, Palace was starting to come into the game a little bit to the point that it looked like they might steal it. You look at the overall stats for this game: twenty-one to ten shots advantage for City, seven to two in shots on target. City possessed fifty-five percent of the ball, and, and for the most part, I think that does describe the game where Palace Lawrence was willing to let City come on to them for the most part, um, but but had almost that typical Pardu surge at the end where there were 10 or 12 minutes where you started asking yourself, maybe Palace could actually steal this game. Was it even stealing though? I mean, that's, yeah, that's st- it. Yeah, stealing euphemistically because that yeah. could have that could have very well been the plan to hold out, wait for something good to happen. And if it doesn't, we're going to make these changes and we might be able to, to actually get those extra two points out of this one. Yeah, um, and I guess that would be the point though with Palace. If they set up that way, then... Um, you know, stealing it that, you know, they had a game plan, I guess mm-hmm. is what I would say. And uh, sometimes the game plan didn't play out particularly well. And it did get into City heads. Part of me also wonders whether Aguero removed himself from the game because he was uh, mentally somewhat, it got to him that if he continued yeah. to get uh, struck down, then, you know, he would get injured. Mm-hmm. And I think to some extent, Palace know that they can kick someone out of the match. But I think. I, I mean, Kartik, to some extent, you guys have both talked about, spoken about it. How do you protect a player from that? Um, and there's a bit of, you know, there's a bit of a tete-a-tete, if you like, on the line between uh, Pellegrini and Pardew. Mm. Uh, and it, it was all very interesting to see the way that basically these two sides were getting each other. But, you know, to some extent, I think Palace, they're not punching above their weight right now, but they're realizing that it's not, you know, it's not the, it's not as these, the, the, the big boys aren't as untouchable mm-hmm. as, uh, as you might, as you might think. Yeah. Maybe we can talk about this the next time it comes up. I just think there's this weird thing where we're willing to accept people being physical and risking the health of other players. Even if the risk gets exaggerated with somebody who's a bit of a China doll, like Kun Aguero, to, 
to limit attacking. That's essentially what happened. Scott Dan was limiting the potential for a goal by by incurring some risk of injuring another player. And while I don't want to make it sound like Scott Dan is the problem, he's not the only person that does this, it seems like a very strange trade-off that we never talk about. And at some point, I think I would just like to see us have a counterattack instead of an injured star. I don't think that's such an unreasonable thing to say when you put it like that, but maybe I'm distorting the issue a little bit. Kartik, no, no, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Kartik, your thoughts on the debut of Kevin De Bruyne? Oh, very good. Uh, outstanding. He came. Okay, so uh, Aguero's injury benefited City in this match. Uh, I thought Palace were clearly the better team for 25 minutes. Uh, they were probably the better team from about minutes 75 to 85, also until yeah, Kabai and Punchin were injured. But uh, De Bruyne coming the match completely changed the complexion of it. Another body in midfield. He gave, was given the freedom to roam. Maybe this is because Silva wasn't playing. So we'll see how it worked out when Silva and Sterling are, are both fit. Uh, presumably as early as Tuesday against Juventus. Uh, that would be your three-man midfield, your three-man man attacking midfield. Uh, but he had the freedom to roam. He was on the right side, set up Jesus Navas beautifully. Navas flubbed an opportunity, uh, came centrally, uh, again, did very well uh, centrally, and then pushed left and really kind of dictated the play out there. Uh, I thought he was really good. And so there have been a lot of question marks in the last two weeks since the signing was made saying, okay, he was dominant in the Bundesliga, uh, I happen to think the Bundesliga is actually a better league than the Premier League, but I know that's that's not a popular opinion among some of our listeners. Don't worry, I'll edit that um, out. Yeah, um, <laughs> but uh, basically that he had been a failure at Chelsea. Maybe he is not an elite Premier League level player. Mm-hmm. It is only uh, it is only sixty five minutes of football, but he looked really the part of an elite player in this in this match against Palace. I thought he was the best player for City in the match. And then, Hart, quickly before we go to break, I want to ask you about a game that there's not much to talk about in terms of Arsenal. 2 nothing victory at home versus Stoke. Pretty much what you would expect. But Stoke is in 19th place. You had, bought, uh, you had kind of bought into the Stoke-Alona uh, vibe before the season. What are your thoughts on, on the Potters at this point? You're a Stoke-Alona. I am so... Yeah, I am so disappointed in them. They they are my biggest disappointment in the league this season, even bigger than uh, Chelsea or, or Liverpool to this point, just because mm. maybe my expectations were out of whack. Uh, I, I don't know what to say. They didn't have Charlie Adam yesterday, and it looked it, right? Yeah. They don't have any uh, any connection between that back line and, and, and the forward line without Adam in the game. Uh, Afalai, uh, horrible uh, foul, which now he, he's obviously out for three games, missed yesterday. Uh, it seems like Shakiri really hasn't, uh, bet in yet? Uh, they're missing Boyan. Uh, the back the back line is is not as disciplined or keeping the shape like they have in the past. Just so many issues. Uh, and uh, I, I, just, I I looked at the fixture list this morning, and I think if Stoke don't begin to turn it around uh, by the end of let's say by the second international break, the one in November or the, mm-hmm. the second one coming, because they've got a, a run of fairly straightforward fixtures. Uh, although nothing straightforward when you're in a position they're in, there might start to be some questions around Sparky because this is uh, this is underwhelming and it's a it's a competitive league at the bottom and you don't want to be stuck in a relegation fight. Hmm. Well, everybody, I like <laughs> you like Stoke? Yeah, I like I like what I like about Stoke is you can see what they want to do and you can see what they're building towards and I think they can see the same. And so for that reason, I agree with Kartik. You know, if if we don't see it by then, but there is a certain level of optimism around Stoke which says. We will see that by then. Mm. Um, and that, to some extent, there's a bit of a learning curve for players like Afalai. Mm. Um, and, you know, they, they, I, think, I think in time uh, it'll, it'll come for them. But then again, people are worrying about the plateau of, 
of Mark Hughes again, aren't they? And what happens when you allow a manager like that an incredible amount of money to spend? Well, and that might go to the core of this. For a team that has made incremental improvements, small improvements, every year under Mark Hughes, uh, now it seems like they're having their first real bad stretch. And if the bad stretch is deemed to be caused by these players not fitting well together, and that is deemed to be Mark Hughes' fault, then we might be talking about somebody who has had a very positive impact on that team, might be talking about the need to move in another direction. Gentlemen, let's go ahead and take our first break. I can hear the fatigue in your voices, the dry mouths. We need to get uh, you guys to your water coolers here for a couple of seconds. Milk. Get me milk. <laughs> can I also just say one thing? It's okay to admit that a manager has taken that team as far as they can go. There's no, there's no disgrace in that. Yeah, and we don't have to say that Mark Hughes is a bad manager. We can just say that the course has been run. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk our players of the week. We're going to talk about some of the more matches in the Premier League. Uh, stay with us. It's the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, last segment, you know, the, well, the super segment that we started the show with, the 40-minute-long segment that we started the show with. Uh, but we talked about Rabble.TV, uh, thankfully our sponsor, and Kartik. We didn't talk about your weekly show that we have on Rabble.TV. Uh, I heard that you had a very notable guest this week. Yes, I did. I had the one and only Ted Westervelt talking about promotion and relegation in the United States, how to integrate the lower divisions and into a, a pyramid with the MLS clubs initially at the top. Uh, it was interesting because I guess the discussion we got into uh, took us in a, in a direction I didn't expect where we were talking about independent clubs, club structures outside of the current league structure, and also uh, uh, the need to geographically balance things, which was quite <laughs> good. So, uh, Which has been one of my bugaboos because I, I pointed out to people time and again, it's not like England, it's not like uh, countries in Europe, the United States and Canada, because Canada plays in the same leagues as the United States, massive continent. It's like traveling from London to Kiev every week in, in most of these road trips. So um, listen, give it a listen. 9 p.m. Eastern time, Thursday uh, evenings, Divers and Cheats. Uh, we, you catch us on Ravel.tv, and, of course, the podcast comes on this podcast stream. Gentlemen, player of the week time, I am going to take the host privilege of going first, and I'm going to take the host privilege of taking the obvious choice. Uh, didn't start this week versus Chelsea, had the most prolific week on the score sheet, Stephen Naismith, three goals, uh, kind of having a, a score sheet that matches his us usual effort level. Uh, all three goals in Everton's 3-1 to one victory over Chelsea. So that's my player of the week. Uh, Lawrence, how about you? Um, can we mention some nominees? Absolutely. Um, I, I jokingly said off air that I go Jack Grealish, um, but there, it's hard to overlook his almost opposite number in this game, which would be Mares. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm going to go with Mares this week, uh, mainly because most weeks you can probably go with Mares or Vardy, right? Um, the, the reason being the assists, um, and obviously the continuation of what Leicester is building there. I think not only does that speak to the fact that Morris has looked fantastic in the formation that they have, um, and the way that he seems to have an understanding with the two strikers up front, um, but also with, with the fact that there's a lot of structure behind him, which allows, um, the, these, a bit, uh, not even behind him, but just sort of, he's, he's backed up by the fact that he has, um, a good back four just behind him there who seem, uh, very solid, and then also a midfield which is allowing him to make the space and time that he needs. Mm -hmm. And so I think it, you know it's not only him we're speaking about today. Um, and then also, I, I also just want to give a quick mention 
to the fact that Norwich managed to score three goals this weekend and Cameron Jerome definitely should get a mention for that reason. We will talk about that because we have been anticipating Norwich having this breakout match uh, pretty much since the beginning of the Premier League season. They've become, I don't want to say a darling of the show, but none of us are going to be surprised to see them actually keep scoring goals. Kartik, your pick for the player of the week. Uh, Mares is the obvious pick every week, and uh, the, yeah. quite, quite frankly, I don't know how uh, anyone in Africa beats uh, Algeria the way he's playing. It's amazing how well he's played these first five matches. I'm going to go with a little bit of an outside-the-box pick, although he did have a goal today, and that's Ryan Mason. I, I uh, have been impressed by him. He had a very bad first game, uh, I felt, against Manchester United, and uh, um after he came on in that game. And, and mm. uh, Bentalov was terrible in that game also. Um, <laughs> and has never been seen again. And has never been seen again, right. But Mason has, has gradually gotten better. As Spurs have not gotten over the hump until today. Uh, he's, he's in the England team. Uh, he's looked good when he's played for England. And he's got this kind of steadiness. This, this Michael Carrick... Uh, Michael Carrick, of course, played for Spurs after he played for West Ham, before he played for Manchester United. That's a team we always forget he played for, right, Carrick? Mm-hmm. But Mason has this steadiness to him. And, yeah, and, and the way he, he, he made that run um, today, uh, combining with, uh, with Lamella and, and getting into the box and scoring that goal, uh, put him over the top for me. But he's been very impressive for me. And this is a player, uh, I, I just want to point this out really quickly. This is a player that was consistently loaned out by the previous managers at Spurs, a guy that was just going to see out his contract, basically. A uh, young player would come through their system that they kept loaning out. Uh, Pochettino comes in. He has a very different philosophy. And that's why I still think, maybe it's not going to be this season. They're not, they, they didn't get Perahino in, but I still think Pochettino's the right guy for Spurs. He's the guy to get them in the top four eventually mm-hmm. because he understands developing youth players and patience. Well, speaking of Pochettino, let's start talking about some of the matches that we haven't touched on. Uh, Southampton still with only one loss this year, but also one win. Uh, Lawrence, I'll start with you. I thought this was kind of a, I don't want to say a typical nil-nil, but it is the kind of game that you often see when one team is slightly superior, controls play, but just can't seem to break through. I, I just can't take that much from Southampton failing to win at the Hawthorns this weekend. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think, um, especially when you look at the possession stats, you realise again that one side has been given the initiative in this game and they just haven't taken it. Um, and the reason that they haven't taken it is because they haven't been able to execute their game plan. And mm-hmm. I mean, how is that a surprise against a side that we know is really good at bashing people's game plans away? Um, it, you know, when, when you look at the way that they set up as well, um, I think they really worked well at silencing Tadic in this match. Um, and I think that was, and you know, if you can basically take one of those guys out, then I think it, it impairs the movement for Southampton. Mm-hmm. Southampton, of course, taking one of their guys out on their own. Sadu Mane starting this match on the bench, coming on late. Tadic uh, taking a couple knocks on his ankle very early on. I was wondering what Tony Pulis had against Tadic's ankle. Um, Kartik, another team that kept a clean sheen, sheet this week. Watford, this is not becoming mm-hmm. uncommon for them. Uh, stellar defensively so far this season. Uh, they were rewarded for this week a one to nothing victory thanks to Odian Agalu's second half goal. Uh, I guess my feeling on this is it's nice to see Watford finally break into the win column. It is. They've played pretty well uh, to this point this season, and, and with the exception of that first game against Everton, uh, the second half of that first game against Everton, they really haven't been opened up. Uh, they were briefly in the game against Manchester City, so they've been very good defensively. Hilario Gomez, a uh, player a lot of people who followed this league for, had forgotten about after he left Spurs and fell out with Harry Redknapp there, uh, has looked very good in goal. He's looked assured. And uh, he actually set up the goal with uh, with great distribution uh, to, to Dini, um, who then crossed it. 
for this one goal. So I, I really like what Kiki Flores is doing there. Keep in mind, he built something at Atleti that Simeone then took to another level. He's a really good manager, and he's already figuring out English football. Um, Lawrence Swans were another darling of this podcast, mostly because I've been forcing their quality on you and Kartik. Um, do we take anything from their, their inability to get any result here, particularly after they had similar struggles against Sunderland? Uh, no, I do think that the main guys for Swansea were uh, off a little bit this week. I mean, we've been singing the praises of um, of the likes of John Joe Shelby over the last few weeks. Uh, obviously, everyone's been somewhat in love with Buffett and B. Gomez and his celebration. Um, but I, 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 basically, we saw those guys off this week. And Ayu uh, tried to create things, but it just didn't come off in the end. And you have to almost chalk this one up to about a bad day at the office for mm-hmm. And I think the gaffer nailed it in his uh, four-match progress report that Wayne Routledge in the starting lineup just doesn't seem right. Getting Jefferson Montero fully healthy is going to be good. And I also think getting Key back in the starting lineup they've been a uh, they've been using yeah. his they've been using his early season hamstring problem as a reason to keep him out. And um, he's such he's such a gifted player that they and a good compliment for John Joe Shelby too. I think they need to get him back in the starting eleven. Um, but let's talk about another darling of the show, Lawrence. Uh, as you mentioned, Norwich broke out this weekend. Three goals against Bournemouth. They gave one back three to one victory uh, i think this is another team where when we see them come good because of our biases we're going to smile a little bit and this weekend albeit against bournemouth bournemouth they did come good yeah they certainly did um and i i guess that's part of it is we've said in the way that teams come up into the premier league you almost think um how can i put this um uh, they bournemouth are the perfect team to play if they wanted to get a win because we're looking at um the the level of Norwich and how they can get achievements uh, at this level. If this is what kicks on, if this if this is what kicks them on to to do well, then I'm you know I'm very happy for that. But I I'm, guess I'm skeptical of how far we can, how much further forward they're actually going to take. If you look at the next mm. few fixtures for Norwich, they obviously play Liverpool next away from home. Then they play West Three Brom, points. and then they play West Three Ham. Three points. Three points. Yeah, this is great. Um, and what I'm <laughs> saying is, you you know, it's wonderful they can play Bournemouth and you know to some extent play a team of their level but when they play someone like Liverpool I'd be interested to see the way that they play that match I'd be interested to see how they play Tony Pulis's West Brom because of you know I'm not, I'm not sure how well they would stand up to the treatment that we saw Pulis give uh, their opposition this weekend and then against West Ham you almost got this Jekyll and Hyde thing so it, it's very difficult to chalk up wins for for Norwich this season mm-hmm. but then what they did do very well in this game um and certainly what I was impressed by was the movement of the forwards and also the interchange, not the interchange, but the interplay between the forwards. Um, and the fact that Houlihan and Jerome both got a goal in this match. I know that Jerome's goal wasn't anything incredible, but the fact that Houlihan and Jerome both got a goal in this match will be great for both of those strikers and is somewhat validation of the system and the shape that they're playing. Hmm. Well, everybody, we've got a couple more games to talk about from the weekend. We'll spend some time in the next segment talking about Spurs. Uh, we'll also go through the European results. A couple of teams still surprisingly struggling, or by a couple, I mean Juventus. And we'll look forward to midweek Champions League action for England's four representatives there. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast.
Welcome back, everybody. Final segment of the show, the one where we commit the horrendous sin of actually looking beyond England and looking at Europe to see what happened there this weekend. We're going to start in Spain, where one of the weekend's biggest games was between Atletico and Barcelona at the Vicente Calderon. Diego Simeone made the surprise decision to start Fernando Torres up front and was given a, a gift for it when he put Atletico ahead early in the second half. Barcelona responded with goals from Neymar. Off the bench, Lino Messi, 2-1 to victory. Barcelona stays perfect through three rounds. Meanwhile, meanwhile, back in Barcelona, Cristiano Ronaldo had five goals, ending his two-match scoreless, quote, drought, unquote, as Real Madrid won 6 to nothing over Espanyol and stayed within two points at the top of the table of Barcelona. In Germany, Bayern went down a goal to Augsburg at the Allianz Arena, but came back with goals from Robert Lewandowski and a late penalty converted by Thomas Mueller. Four games, 12 points. Bayern are even with Borussia Dortmund, who got a small scare at Hanover before coming back to win three four to two thanks to two penalties and an own goal in france goalkeeper kevin trapp has apparently yet to return from international break for psg who came into the weekend having yet to allow a goal but against visiting bordeaux trapp badly misplayed a first half corner conceding there and then had the ball taking off of him late by wabi kasari and Isagavani had two goals but psg is no longer perfect after their 2-2 draw and in italy with the well the big game in italy this weekend is the derby della Maddalena, but since it was kicking off at the same time we were recording we don't care about it. Uh, what we do care about, however, is Juventus, who on Saturday dropped more points, this time at home to Chievo. They did improve getting their first result of the season with a 1-1 draw, but through three rounds, Juventus has only one point, four titles in a row, now looking a little insecure. Uh, Lawrence, how surprised are you to see Juventus struggling? Uh, 50%. 15%? Um, yeah, 50 but mainly because um, you look at that outster in the summer um, and how key those players were in the midfield, the shape of that side, um, you know, the Pirlo, the Vidal. Um, and you look at the way that they've tried to reshape the team and you'd say that isn't really working so far. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't seem to be as adaptable or maybe as intelligent, um, even even though, you know, we, we saw more influential players as well last season. What, what I would say with uh, the way that we're looking at this is we're only three games into Syria. They've already played Roma. Um, and I know that they sat bottom of the table, but that was two games in. Um, I don't think they look as awful as people are, are pointing out. I, I, you know, I, I don't understand why people are sort of saying, oh, you know, this is the, the worst thing that could have happened. But what, <laughs> there is history to say that maybe uh, as Allegri goes on, things tend to happen like this. And so I think that's why people are panicking. Yeah. And then Kartik in Germany, uh, Bayern, the, the stats were dominant. Uh, I think they outshot Augsburg 24 to one or something like that. But at the end of the game, they did have to get bailed out a little bit. Yeah. A very controversial penalty call in, in the 88th minute, which uh, Mueller then converted and, and they won two to one. Uh, Augsburg's been a bit of a bogey for Bayern these last mm-hmm. few seasons uh, since Pep got to Bayern. They've lost to them each of the last two seasons and uh, they almost got beat again. Uh, this time uh, at the uh, uh, at the Allianz Arena, so it was uh, it was interesting to see them get uh, rescue a game again and struggle to break down an opponent that scored early and then bunkered. That that same thing happened uh, a couple weeks ago, and they got a late winner in that game against Hoffenheim. It was and uh, same story here where they got a penalty and they got bailed out late. But uh, Bayern looking a little bit wobbly, and we know there are a lot of question marks about Pep uh, if he doesn't win the Champions League this year. Yeah. And they're looking 
looking wobbly as another team that is in that discussion as best in the world, Barcelona, just with an incredibly impressive victory, uh, particularly coming out of an international break where because of their transfer ban, they have a really thin squad right now. And to win one of their two toughest matches of the year was just incredibly impressive and uh, really says something for the staying power that Luis Enrique has has uh, instilled there. Uh, not just a one-year thing, it looks like. If Barcelona can get through this first half of the season, uh, they might be as good as the Barcelona last year. Uh, top four is what we do every segment. We list our top four teams in the Premier League on form and then how we think the season is going to finish. Uh, Kartik, let's start with you. Okay, right now, top four on form for me is one, uh, Manchester City, two, uh, Leicester, three, Palace, four, Arsenal. And then my top four for the end of the season would be one, City, two, Arsenal, three, Chelsea. No, sorry, one, City, two, Chelsea, three, Arsenal, four, Let's put Everton in there this week. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going with similar lists. Uh, City, of course, is number one on form. Uh, and then I have a pack of four teams that's probably similar to yours, except for I have United in there. I also have Arsenal, Leicester, and Palace. But I have United number two on form just because I look at the wins that they have, and they have wins over two teams that we expect to finish in the top six or seven, uh, Spurs and Liverpool. And while they haven't been that impressive, there's only been one impressive team in this league so far, and United has their lack of impressiveness to couple with actual results. Uh, number three, I'd put Leicester. Number four, Arsenal. I'm, it was a real big debate between Palace and Arsenal for me. End of the season, City, Chelsea, United, Arsenal. Huge gap between one and two there. Uh, I, If I had to put an over-under on the number of points City would win this league by at this point, 7.5 would be my number. Uh, Lawrence, your top fours. City, Leicester, Everton. Why are we all forgetting Everton this week? Um, and Arsenal. Uh, and my top four just goes City, United, Arsenal, Chelsea. Just mm. to uh, emphasize where Chelsea have dropped to. Lawrence is the one brave person that actually has this slow start affecting uh, Chelsea in their end of season rankings. I mean, what are they? They're 11 points behind City at this point. So that's... that's right, but they're only six points behind Arsenal or United. Yeah, that that's very true. Uh, which is why you and I that's still have Liverpool. them second. Well, let's put it that way. Yes, yeah. so let's put, let, let's put it that way. Uh, let's talk about the two games this weekend that we haven't touched on yet. Uh, Tottenham Sunderland is the one that's interesting to me for a few reasons. Well, we saw the debut Kartik of one player that I, I don't think people are paying enough attention to. Sun Hyun Min is one of Asia's best player, very good player for Bayer Leverkusen, not somebody that's going to take over this team by any stretch, but certainly a very dangerous player. But we also see Tottenham, without Christian Eriksen, continue to struggle. And for me, it's getting to the point where when they don't have Christian Eriksen, I don't know that they actually have a team that really resembles a team that can actually challenge for the top four, top five spot. Yeah, I, I, I actually thought Spurs would be the team to push United the closest at the beginning season for fourth and thought it would, they would push it. I, I was counting on them getting Berahina first off. I thought that was going to happen even in July. And they were not uh, able to, to, to keep some of the players that, that they, they moved on that I was surprised by. Capo, uh, Etienne Capu, who's played very well for Watford, mm-hmm. moving him on. So they, they have some questions in central midfield. And they've just looked kind of uneven. I, I, their performances haven't been bad. They've looked solid at the back. Loris is still one of the best keepers in the world. But uh, going forward, Harry Kane uh, has now lost his confidence. The first few games, I think he was being marked out of games. Now, today, he had an opportunity and whiffed on the ball. Uh, they don't look very dangerous without Erickson. I would agree with that. Uh, Chadley looks hit or miss. Lamella, though, has come on in, in, in a couple games and given them a spark. He gave them a spark in that opening game, opening game at Old Trafford when he came on. I thought he, he really changed that match. And then today, I thought he gave them a spark. I thought Sunderland were the better team until uh, he came on. So it was... Uh, and, and then Barini, of course, also uh, got hurt at that point for Sunderland. Uh, but I... I I don't know. Maybe Lamella 
He's now in his third year. He's still, I believe, their club record signing. Maybe he's the guy that get, that that finally comes good and and uh, allows them to climb the table. I don't know. That's that's just something to think about in the coming weeks. Mm. But I think it's interesting that a reasonable person can look at this match and say Sunderland, who to this point has been the worst team in the league, um, that they were as good as Spurs um, yeah. <laughs> until, until Lee Catamarol came on, and of course, then the the game went against Spurs. I, I just think that's funny. Uh, not that Catamarol was particularly to blame or anything like that but uh after dick advocate this week kind of talking down lee catamarole's role in the team starting him on the bench in this one um and then sunderland only concedes after their captain comes on uh, lawrence let's talk about the other match from sunday aston villa lester lester comes back three goals uh overcomes their deficit but am i crazy for wondering whether lester could really be as good as we think they are when they give up two goals to aston villa yeah, they did give up two goals to Aston Villa. It was a very late rally from them, 72 minutes to 89, Nathan Dyer capping that one off. Um, uh, you'd also say, was it to some extent that Aston Villa took their foot off the gas when they thought that they were ahead against the side that they should be beating? And then very late on, they rallied very well. But again, it's another one of those... I mean, that's part of it, isn't it? Is um, actually, you know, we, we barely even mentioned Jamie Vardy, and I think a lot of people would have mm-hmm. uh, would have nominated him for man of the match. We're mentioning Mares, but people putting Vardy in there for for man of the match. Um, but it, it, basically, it was the fact that uh, it's nothing to do with whether they dominated the game or not. It's to do with the fact that they played their game plan exactly when they yep. wanted to and got very effective. They basically they were very effective in the way they wanted to play, and in, in that very short amount of time, it broke Aston Villa down very, very well. You know, we saw Mares with his mazy dribbles, and that, <laughs> that was very effective against the back line. Um, we we saw Vardy with the end product, and uh, then it you know the, it was the aggressive, almost chance-like goal in the end with Dyer that I thought. Uh, made it exceptionally exciting and that's part of it is that Aston Villa essentially took their foot off the gas or more to the point believed that Leicester City were going to get that third goal but I think it's important for us to recognize uh, the return of Tinkerman here. Uh, Claudio Ranieri is very good tactically, and I know he's been judged by what people think are failed stints at Roma and Monaco and and and, and uh, Greece. Juventus and Gre- well, Greece, Greece most a, notably. Greece was an epic failure, and he lost to the Faroe Islands twice. But that's an international job. I'm not quite sure you can equate that to a club job. He's been at big clubs: Roma, Monaco, uh, Juventus. Uh, these are inter. These are places where there's there's a heightened expectation. He's a tinkerer. He's a guy. The last time he's had a real good run in a job was Chelsea. Well, I guess Roma. He had a couple, but and and he's very good at seeing a game and making tactical changes. And now that he's at a club where that sort of thing is acceptable, there's not many sacred cows on the team, and he can make the changes he needs to make in match. I think it's a good it's a good uh, uh, relationship. And we saw it today. Things weren't going well. They were being caught out on the counter. Uh, he brought a Joa on. Brought uh, Nathan Dyer on. And the game changed completely from that point on. It, it, you knew they were going to get a goal. You thought they were going to get a second. And you thought they might get a third when it was still 2-0 after he made those changes. Uh, and, of course, great, brilliant home crowd. But I have to give Rainieri a lot of credit because I think there's been a narrative about him. And, uh, Richard, you mentioned the grease job. A lot of it was furthered by the grease job. But we had already made this determination after Monaco. And when he got hired at Monaco, we're thinking, what are they doing? What, look at how it blew up at, at Roma. And um, for a club the size of Leicester... 
I think he's probably a perfect hire. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, he wouldn't be the person I would hire to coach my team if I were competing for a Champions League spot. But right. for a team like Leicester, I almost would say they're, I wouldn't say lucky, but fortunate to have him. Uh, gentlemen, the Monday game this week I find incredibly intriguing. West Ham has been all over the map, but they have notable wins at Arsenal and at Liverpool. And then Newcastle is one of the teams that's occupying the bottom three spots right now, Lawrence. But there is kind of this... I don't want to say solidity, but nobody's had an easy time against of it against Newcastle, and we saw them give Manchester United trouble at Old Trafford. I'm really looking forward to this Monday match. Well, it's also that you'd say you, you we can see very clearly what Newcastle are trying to achieve, right? And and so I think that gives them um, you like yeah, that. And, we know how much you like that. Well, I, I do what I do. I do think it is. I'm, I'm not saying therefore they're easy to read. Um, no. But what I, what I'm saying is it's that it, 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 it to some extent it. Abates uh, the fans because it means well you know at least we can see that we feel there's some sort of progress being made here where they didn't feel that mm-hmm. um, rightly so after Pardew left last season um, and so to some extent they're seeing that as progress um, and then West Ham fans obviously have the contrast to that of beating Liverpool three 0 in the last game then before that feeling the contrast of some pretty bad performances against a fairly early confident win mm-hmm. so. I wonder if it's about the intelligence of Steve McLaren, what he's going to try and do in this game against uh, Slavin Bilic. Uh, and I imagine a lot of people are going to go down the old narrative route. I can just see Henry Winter's headlines now. But um, w- the way that I would go about this one is it's how well Newcastle managed to look at the, the threat of, of what West Ham pose, which is from a number of angles, and how they managed to keep up with the pace of West Ham. And that's what I'm worried about is will Newcastle be able to contain the pace and the, the explosiveness of what West Ham do? And I, I'm just not sure they've got that. And I'm going to apologize to our listeners here because I would actually like to spend some more time going back and forth about this match because it's very compelling. Uh, whether you think of what West Ham showed in the first half of last year or what Newcastle is doing under McLaren, which uh, Lawrence did talk about. But we have Champions League coming up and I'd like to get our thoughts or your guys' thoughts on that. Champions League uh, group play starts on Tuesday and Kartik, the, the big match of the day, not just for English teams, but in the whole competition on Tuesday is Juventus visiting the Etihad. And this is about, this is the perfect time to get Juventus if you're Manchester City? It appears to be. Obviously, one point in three matches. Uh, they, they rescued that point against Chievo the other day. Uh, Buffon made a brilliant save when they were down 1-0, and, and then they got the late equalizer. And uh, I, I agree completely with Lawrence's points about Allegri. There, there are these question marks about his time at Milan. They won the league the, his first season, and, and it looked so brilliant, and it, it looked like they were going to build something, and by the time he left, they were, they were closer to the relegation zone than they were to a Champions League spot by the time he was uh, he was sacked at Milan. So, and they still haven't recovered, right? A couple of years re- later. Mm. I, I, I don't think it's that straightforward for Manchester City, though, because we know how Manchester City has struggled in Europe, and we know how Juventus, with Pogba in the team, and with Buffon as the goalkeeper, how strong they are, how strong the spine of that team is, even when you take Arturo Vidal out. And they've got an, uh, an ability, I think, to really create problems for Manchester City. So uh, this game is still really a toss of the coin for me. Lawrence, the other Tuesday match with Premier League teams sees uh, Memphis going back to PSV. Uh, PSV won the Dutch League last year, but obviously with huge contribution, not only from Memphis, but a couple other players that have since departed. Uh, I don't want to make it sound like anybody on here is a huge expert on PSV Eindhoven. We don't want to lie to you here, but uh, this does seem like a similar level uh, to 
to what Manchester United faced in qualifying. Club Bruges obviously is not PSV, but we're talking about um, teams that are closer to each other than, than maybe the top of Champions League. With that in mind, yeah. what do we expect here? Do we expect Manchester United to have major problems on Tuesday? Uh, I don't know if it's about major problems, but how much Manchester United managed to dominate the game. I mean, mm-hmm. they are playing against um, a side that won 6-0 this weekend, but then they did that against a side where you wonder whether they were going to do that anyway. Um, but once you do the Dutch to normal football conversion, that's only 2-0. Yeah, but they're still winning 2-0. Yeah, sure. um, uh, although, you know, Manchester United had a very confident win and they've also looked fantastic in Champions League. It's, it, it, you know, I mean, if, if we're looking at the way that United played in the second half and we're hoping that they continue that into this Champions League um, fixture and we see you know, how slow they were in the Premier League and then how much that went up in the Champions League. I wonder the difference between the two um, and whether Lou Van Gaal will be able to again get his players, and I think he will, get his players to perform at this high energy level that they seem to play at in Europe. Um, and I, I think they'll come away with a quite comfortable win mm. against PSV. And it'll almost be like a reminder of uh, what, what we expected back in the Alex Ferguson days almost of United in the groups. Mm. Karchik, I'm going to completely patronize uh, Dinamo Zagreb here. That's where Arsenal is on Wednesday. And just say that these matches where you see a relative European titan, a big team, we'll, we'll just say a big team, going to these teams that occasionally qualify for this tournament, it really just seems to be about how seriously those teams take these matches. And when they do take them seriously, Seriously, they're going to win these games. Right, and how, how, uh, not just teams that occasionally qualify, leagues that occasionally have qualification. Right. Croatian League doesn't often send a team into the group stages of the Champions League. So congratulations to them, because that is quite an achievement. Uh, but I think Arsenal will win this game with relative ease and, and hopefully uh, avoid the injury bug. That seems to be always the problem, man. The Arsenal plays games that they should win in Champions League and someone gets hurt, and we know how they are with injuries. Mm-hmm. And then the, the final match for a Premier League side on Wednesday, Lawrence, and this really ties into us trying to read the tea leaves of Mourinho because the final year that Mourinho was with Chelsea these matches like Wednesday's visit from Maccabi Tel Aviv started to become much more difficult than they should have and if this is really a team that cannot get motivated as they should get motivated to a level that's commensurate with their talent then we maybe will see a tougher game on Wednesday than we're anticipating yeah I guess it's also about the way that Chelsea have got their bullies out there and they're almost expecting those guys to bully and I just wonder if it's that Mourinho swagger at times which will come back Uh, you know the, the, I don't want to say Diego Costa bullying, but I, I, you do sort of think, you know, what's he going to do against that back line? Um, and you, you can almost see Chelsea coming away with like a 1 0 win with John Terry getting the header. Do you know what I mean? Um, it would be a lovely match. Um, but, I, I, you know, when they're coming against, up against these sides, you, yeah, you hark back. The problem being, it's very difficult to predict what Chelsea are going to do right now um, and w- which kind of side's going to turn up. What I am interested in is how that midfield shape for Chelsea will persist or whether it will change over the next uh, set of games, how much Mourinho will tinker with this side because we we look at you know his very small set of people that he trusts and what is not serving him very well right now is we d- I don't know if he knows who he trusts within that side. Mm. Well, we did see John Obi Mikel brought back into the team this weekend. Obviously, that didn't work out so well. Chelsea's loss, the big story coming out of the fifth weekend of matches in the Premier League. Uh, the one thing that we do know for next weekend is that the three of us will be back again Sunday recording, Sunday distribution of another edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. But until then. And for Lawrence McKenna, I'm Richard Farley, Kartik. Enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is produced by Christopher Harris and Richard Farley and is a production of WorldSoccerTalk.com. For more information on the show, check us out at WorldSoccerTalk.com or subscribe through our iTunes feed. 
You can follow World Soccer Talk on Twitter at World Soccer Talk or follow the show's hosts. Lawrence McKenna is at Lawscast. Kartik Krishnar is at KKFLA737. And I'm at Richard Farley.